Welcome everyone to evening worship. It's good to be with you. Um, as we begin, our call to worship is from Psalm 47, verses 1 through 7. I'll read this and then pray for our service tonight. This is God's word. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Would you please pray with me? <laughs> oh, man. It's only going to get worse as, we, as technology continues. But uh, Lord, have mercy on our technology. I'm sorry. to don't mean to call you out. It's all of us. Um, let's pray. God, we, we come before you with all of uh, the distractions of the world, uh, of devices, of work, of things we're worried and anxious about. And you have brought us here in the peace of your spirit. You brought us to this place of worship uh, to give you glory, to give you honor. And what we say with our lips this evening, what we pray, would you make it so we are not simply saying empty words, but would you cause us to believe in our heart what we say and what we believe God, would you do these things through your spirit? Holy Spirit, would you lead us in this time of worship? We are grateful for this time, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand for our first hymn, it is hymn 73, which is Rejoice All People, Homage. Please stand and we'll sing hymn 73. Thank you. 
You may be seated. We come into our confession of sin, our corporate confession of sin. And if you're curious, uh, I personally do not write these. Uh, there's resources uh, that have been written over the years um, for liturgies such as this that give us prayers that I think are, are good, that are not distracting but are truthful and are worthy of praying together. So we'll, we'll confess our sin together by reading this prayer and then we'll go into a time uh, in which you can approach God yourself silently and in prayer as you confess your sins, as you bring him your needs and your anxieties, your desires, whatever it might be. And we can enjoy a time of prayer silently and individually. So let's read together this corporate confession of sin. Loving God, we confess before you and each other that our lives are not pure and holy apart from the cleansing we have from the work of Christ. And we confess that too often Christ in us is hidden by our actions that wound rather than heal, that tear down rather than build up. Open our eyes that we may see you in the ones we say we love. Open our ears that we may be quicker to listen than to speak. Open our mouths to speak good rather than evil of our neighbors. Open our hands in generosity and help us let go of clenched fists. Open our hearts to a desire to follow Jesus in full obedience to your will and your way. We pray, trusting in your forgiveness and in the power of your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in paths of justice and righteousness for your name's sake. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are the God of all grace, and you forgive all who come to you in repentance and faith, confessing their sins, and you give us this word of assurance from Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God, that is your truth that you have given us to comfort us, to assure us, uh, to lead us in paths of righteousness for your sake. So God, would you create in us hearts that are sure of your forgiveness? Would you fill our hearts with this joy, with the joy of your salvation? so that we can live lives that are glorifying to you, so that we can walk in those things that you have prepared for us to do. 
in every circle and sphere of life. God, would you do these things, and would you continue to bless this service? Would you care for the needs of your people around the world, of those conflicts that we know of in the news, whether it be Ukraine and Russia or Israel and several, several other places, God? Protect your people. Bring peace, we pray. Open our ears to hear your word and receive it into our hearts tonight as we hear from your gospel. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take up our evening offering, we'll continue singing together with hymn 235. Would you continue worshiping with me with hymn 235? I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 46, and tonight we'll be reading a rather, a little bit longer of a passage, but we'll be focusing on just a a part of it, Uh, but I didn't want to skip it because I think it is uh, a wonderful passage in its own right. Mark chapter 10, verse 46, we'll begin reading and then I'll pray for the message. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. 
And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me for a moment? God, we normally see this passage uh, during Easter week, and yet we come upon it in the fall. And so, Lord, would you speak to us in a fresh way? Would you show us the gospel in a way that would encourage and challenge us this evening so that we would live uh, renewed and new lives for you this week? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a famous passage, of course, uh, one that even if you don't go to church on a regular basis, you have probably heard a part of this passage. 
And it is fascinating that as we go through the Gospel of Mark, and I've said this before, but the Gospel of Mark begins spanning many years and months even. And then as you get further along, as Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, the time frame begins to constrict and get smaller and smaller. So we go from years to months to now just one week. So a third of the Gospel of Mark spans seven days. I think that's fascinating. It's interesting. We are now looking at the greatest moment, what everything has been been led up to now in the Gospel of Mark. And one of these passages in particular is one of the most contentious passages in the Bible. Um, The fig tree. You might have thought when you heard this just now, wow, Jesus looks or sounds kind of um, agitated, maybe even immature or childish. Uh, Just going online, if you go on the internet and you search this passage about the fig tree, you will see that this passage has led many people to simply reject Christianity altogether because they see Jesus as this vindictive, as this immature person who was simply hungry, and this fig tree that was not even in season wasn't producing fruit, and Jesus curses the tree. How could that be? Why would Jesus do that? He is merely a man, and a man who I would never worship. And so you might have questions as well. Is this passage alone enough to throw Jesus out? Uh, Of course, no but we'll go into that in a moment. So I want to look at three parts as we move through this passage. We'll look at the hypocrisy of the people, the hypocrisy of the fig tree, and the hypocrisy of the temple. The people, the fig tree, and the temple. So let's look at verse 8, the hypocrisy of the people. If you would read with me again, uh, chapter 11, verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the triumphal entrance to Jerusalem. They're shouting, Hosanna! They're laying down palm branches as the Messiah finally comes into Jerusalem, into his city, where he will set up his throne, the place that all his disciples and everyone following him was looking forward to seeing what he would do, what would happen. Hosanna literally means save, we pray. Save, we pray. It's a a phrase of adoration to God. Hosanna, save us, we pray. And we just read earlier in this passage, the only person who is named in the Gospels who is healed, Bartimaeus, who is shouting too. And what does he shout at Jesus? It's not Hosanna, it's have mercy on me. Help me. He has a need and Jesus heals him and then Bartimaeus follows him. One difference that we can see in just these two stories is that Bartimaeus is crying out with a need. It's an honest cry for help. 
The other is a religious phrase, a religious expression of adoration. One is an honest cry for help, and the other is a group of people who are saying, save, we pray, Hosanna, but those very people are going to be the ones crying out to Jesus, save yourself, King of the Jews. It will be those people who are mocking, who are spitting on Jesus in just a matter of days. And so we see just in this first part that the people of God, Israel, is saying one thing with their lips in their worship, but Jesus knows their heart. This isn't a triumphal entry. It is a despairing entry, you could say. Jesus is going into Jerusalem, seeing Israel and the people saying one thing, but knowing their hearts, their hearts betray them. So after his encounter with the hypocrisy of the people, he encounters the hypocrisy of the fig tree. If you look at verse 12, it says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So what's going on here? Is Jesus losing his temper? Is he cursing this fig tree because he was hungry and it didn't have figs, even though it wasn't in season? Um, Mark says, of course, the fig tree wasn't in season. How could we be mad at this fig tree? The fig tree wasn't doing anything wrong. It wasn't in season. So is Jesus not himself here, or is something else going on? And of course, something else is going on. Commentators will talk about two different things. One, many people believe um, that as you study the fig tree, you'll know that as it's going to produce fruit, first it grows leaves, and then it grows these little buds. And these buds, called pagim, uh, are edible. And so these pagim would be eaten by mainly the poor, those who are traveling, they would come by and eat these. And so these commentators would say that because it wasn't the season for figs, Jesus knew that at least there would be these little buds that he could come and eat, but even those were not a fig tree. So Jesus curses it. I listened to R.C. Sproul talk about this passage, and he, uh, as R.C. Sproul, you know, had. He had connections to everyone you could imagine. And he knew a friend. He had a friend who was an expert in the climate of this area. And his friend, who's an expert, said that he didn't believe that it was really about these buds that Jesus was talking about. He understood that there were different fig trees. There were some fig trees that simply grew out of season. They were extraordinary fig trees. So his argument is that there was a fig tree growing. It was showing its leaves. It was showing evidence that it should have fruit, and yet it does not. A fig tree growing out of season, even still, should have fruit if it's showing that it's producing fruit, but it does not. So whether it's about these buds 
that Jesus was expecting. He was expecting to be fed because it was showing leaves. Or whether it was uh, the, not the season for fig trees, but there was an extraordinary fig tree growing that should have had fruit. Either way, Jesus is using this fig tree as a parable, as a teaching moment. He is, if you look at the passage, you'll see that the fig tree begins and ends um, before and after the temple. So before Jesus goes into the temple, the fig tree is a metaphor for Israel, for the temple. So rather than being a random story, Mark is sandwiching the fig tree story with Jesus' encounter with Jerusalem. It's a living parable of Israel's heart, of humanity's heart. There were signs of fruit in the fig tree, but there was no fruit. There were signs of fruit in the temple. There is no fruit. The Bible uses the fig tree often as an example of what God, of how God views his people. He says in Jeremiah chapter 8, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So many things are beautiful on the outside that tell you something is going on on the inside when in fact nothing is happening. We came across the rich young ruler who was this very moral person. He was doing everything right according to God's word. He was following the commandments, and yet his heart had not been changed, and he does not follow Jesus. He had leaves but no fruit. In Revelation chapter 3, we come across this fascinating letter to the church of Sardis. We read this. It says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And so Jesus is cursing this fig tree. He is bringing judgment to not just the fig tree, but to Israel. They appear fruitful, but they have no fruit. And not just Israel, all of humanity. And so judgment in Scripture is very... When you read about God's judgments, you are taken aback. You pause for good reason. Judgment is first and foremost a warning. God does not judge just to judge. He judges so that people would turn back to him. It's a warning to repent and to be saved and to have life. Came across this great quote from uh, the man who wrote Surprised by Hope, who I'm now forgetting what his name is. Uh, but he, wrote, he said this. He said, we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy in the trees of the field, to clap their hands, 
In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, he says, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to judge, to judge them, to judge hypocrisy. First, in the outward false praise of people, and then, secondly, in the fruitless fig tree, and now we see in the temple. So as we, let's look at the hypocrisy of the temple. Verse 17, if you want to read along with me, it says this, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Earlier in our passage, Jesus goes to the temple. It seems kind of like a throwaway verse that Jesus, when he first enters Jerusalem, it says he goes to the temple, he looks around, And then he leaves. Jesus scopes everything out. He sees the lay of the land. He sees what is happening at the temple. All of the activities that are going on. And there are a lot. Thousands upon thousands of animals are being sold for sacrifice. There's activity everywhere. Many will say it was a stockyard of animals for sacrifice put on and run by the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And one historian said in the first century that there were as many as 250,000 lambs sold for Passover alone. For one holiday, 250,000 lambs. So Jesus comes to this temple amidst all of this activity, and he literally flips the tables. He flips everything on its head, metaphorically and actually physically. There is a uh, a book that was written between the prophets and between when Jesus came that is not scripture, but it was written and is seen as being authentic that leads us to believe that many thought the Messiah was going to come to Jerusalem in his power and throw out the Gentiles, that they would be kicked out, that the Gentiles, the aliens, the foreigners would all be cleared out so that the temple would be pure. But Jesus here is not throwing out the Gentiles, the aliens, the foreigners. He says he's clearing out the temple for them so that they have a place at the temple. The temple was always meant to be a place that welcomed the foreigner and the exile not exclude them or put up obstacles for them or exploit them. Jesus isn't coming to the temple just to judge the temple for doing its religious activities. He is judging these people who are running a system of exploitation and exclusion. The temple appeared fruitful, but inwardly, these leaders were taking advantage of the poor. They were excluding Gentiles from worship. Their leaves, so to speak, 
where I cover for their inward brokenness, their inward sinfulness. And so in order for there to be fruit from this place, the temple is going to need not just to be refurbished or renovated, it will need to be destroyed and built back up again. And what does Jesus say? In just a few verses, he will say, this temple will be destroyed, but it will be rebuilt in me. I will be the new temple raised after three days. Israel is going to need not just a few corrections, not just a renovation, but a new heart. And not just Israel, of course, but you and me. Jesus quotes from Jeremiah in this passage. And Jeremiah would later say, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah is prophesying about what God is going to do. He's not going to come just to kind of correct things, but to actually give people a new heart. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to root out hypocrisy, to offer a heart transplant free of charge, because that's the only remedy. From head to toe, Israel is cursed to death. They are, should be expecting judgment. Judgment has come in Christ, and it's not just Israel. It's you and me. If outward leaves prove nothing, and can even be a cover for sinfulness, then what is Jesus looking for? What is Jesus looking for? If our outward leaves of activity prove nothing, it can be a cover for sinfulness, what is he looking for? In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus says this, when he, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus reprimands these religious leaders and says, If you've come to my baptism to be saved, to follow me, if you've come for salvation or to be right with God, then repent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is the key to our passage, the key to life with God, to being right with God, to producing fruit in God. Repentance. As, as it says again in Revelation you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So in this judgment that Jesus is bringing to Jerusalem, to the people, to the temple, to the fig tree, there is also grace. Jesus is saying, wake up. You have the appearance of being alive. You're showing leaves, but you are, in fact, dead. 
And so we're called to do what? In that passage from Revelation, it says to remember what you've heard and received. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ and keep it. And when you do, when you come to Jesus honestly, you come into a place in which you see your sin and he leads you to repentance. And we're warned that you may not have an opportunity in the, in the future to do this. You cannot wait until you're older, until you've done all the things that you want to do, and then to confess your sins and repent. It says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So Jesus' presence in Jerusalem, at the temple, with the people, is not just judgment, it is grace. He is saying, come back to me. Confess your hypocrisy, repent, and you may not have an opportunity to do so in the future. We are hypocritical people oftentimes. I know I am. I know I had an argument with Elizabeth right after church uh, in which I sinned. And I had to confess, repent. We are deceitful, hypocritical people because we are sinners. We sing praises to God in the morning and the evening on Wednesdays and then we curse our neighbor as we drive home. The curse for our sin, as we know, is eternal death, is separation from God. But because of Christ, we can say, thanks be to God. As Pastor Heath said this morning, Christ took the curse of the fig tree, the curse that ought to be ours, the curse that sin brings. He took our hypocrisy on himself so that you could be saved and so that you could be spiritually fruitful. That famous passage from Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is our hope. This is the good news. Christ took the curse that we deserved upon himself. And so we see, I think, there's so many applications to this passage, but I think we can see clearly, one, that God isn't after your actions, your words, your religious activities. He wants your heart to know him, to trust him, to worship him in the fullness of joy. And so we are called to repent of our leaves. Confess your sin. Stop deceiving yourself and others and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We pray that this church would have people in it who walk in repentance, who point people to Jesus' grace and mercy rather than their own lives, their own works, who acknowledge their sin, their deceit, and humbly repent. 
So if you're going through the motions of Christianity, of church, if you're putting out these leaves, so to speak, if you're involved in church, you know the Bible, you tell others that you love Jesus, but inwardly you have no trust in God, inwardly you have no love for God, the Holy Spirit, Christ, inwardly you have no repentance or no understanding of your sin, then Jesus says, come, taste and see that I am good. Repent, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He has rescued you and me from the burden of outward religious acts to make us fruitful in the works that he has prepared for us. This is the good news. Let's pray. God, you come into Jerusalem with harsh words, with harsh actions, and they are meant to draw us back to you. They're meant to wake us up to our own sinfulness, our own deceitfulness, our own hypocrisy. You wake us up so that you can give us a new heart, to give us new life, so that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So God, would you do these things? Would you bless us with repentance? For it's a gift from you, a miraculous gift, gift of your grace. God, give us this gift, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand for our closing hymn this evening, which is hymn 628, Come, My Soul, Thy Suit Prepare, hymn 628.
Go with God's blessing from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.